0: This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay welcome special guests Michael Berrigan and Michael Angelos of Plexi to revisit their 1996 album, Cheer Up.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Manici, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak, Jay yeah that's my my witty um, announcer intro.
2: yeah Again, you're getting.
1: I need to work on that. yeah, you're getting worse at it. I know. I'm getting tired of it. I need people want to send in an idea for a new intro. I know Neil's a big fan of it, but I really it's getting worn out. <laughs> so I've been doing it for 59 episodes. I think I need to try something else. Something we've been trying this year is is doing interviews and we've got another one. Tonight, this is going to be fun. We have on the line, from the band Plexi, Mr. Michael Harrigan. Michael, thanks for joining us. How are you doing this evening?
0: I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm doing really good.
1: Awesome. So we were um, discussing some stuff before the show with regards to uh, how bands are structured in terms of... uh, there tends to be one person in the band who kind of looks after everything and, and takes care of everything.
2: An adult, if you will.
1: <laughs> An adult, yes. And uh, you said that you had the one normal guy who, ironically enough, was named Norm. So that kind of worked out. Now, I have a question about that about Norm because we're going to get into the history of the band, but this was a little bit of... I, I read your bio. Um, it's on uh, Sub Pop and also on Wikipedia. And it mentions something about... Um, hooking up with the drummer at a Taoist retreat. Is that true? Because that kind of blew my mind for a rock band to meet at a Taoist retreat. Can you confirm or deny that?
0: I can't confirm or deny that, actually, oh. um, where Michael and, and Norm met. But um, I know I, uh, I know that was a very uh, Michelangelo, the singer-driven uh, bio. It's uh, kind of... Uh, a little doorway into, you know, his, uh, his mind and how it works, uh, very tongue-in-cheek at times, you know, wanting to, uh, I guess, push buttons or, you know, just make fun.
1: Well, that was something that you know? stuck out, and I, I wanted to ask that right off the top, because you don't find references to Taoist retreats in many um, band bios, so I just wanted to... Right. Cover that one freight from the the beginning. So he yeah, was. That was uh, yeah,
0: that, 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 that's a small little a piece of Michael's mind. Here. I think also in that in that bio, it uh, it referred to me, me as being, uh, if I remember correctly, as being a, a go-go dancer of some sort.
1: Something along those well, lines. Yes. Yeah. And,
2: uh, I love that term. Yeah. 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 That's so much better than uh, stripper.
0: Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. I preferred it as well.
2: Right. There's a whole look that goes with it. and
0: It's it classy. It yeah.
2: has a visual picture.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, once again, a, a, a little doorway into Michael's <laughs> mind there.
1: So we're going to get into, I guess you would say, the, the, the only full-length release um, of Plexi's career. That's 1996's Cheer Up. There were some EPs uh, released before that and some releases after but we're gonna cover all that in the history of the band, which we're gonna do right now.
3: History of the band.
1: Uh, so, and again, if there are other things that are fictitious when it comes to the history of the band, you can feel free to, to chime in. Um, but I think we've got uh, most of it from accurate sources, so I'm gonna to try to I'm going to try to cover this as, as briefly as possible. Uh, the band formed in 93, you, and uh, Mr. Angelos met at a bar in L.A. Is that true?
0: Sure, it can be true. <laughs> <laughs> I like that the where I was where I was go-go dancing. Yeah, that's yeah. It. That's
1: okay. Good. <laughs> so, so Michael A. was a, a singer and bass player. Michael B. you, guitarist and keyboards. And then Norm Block we mentioned played drums. 1994 the A self-titled six-song EP was recorded and then released the following year on the label Boy's Life in 95, uh, the same year. A second EP, this time a four-song EP, was recorded and released on the Seattle label IFA. And at this point, the band signs to Sub Pop, somewhere in there. It's a little murky. And on the Wikipedia page, it mentions the name Curtis W. Pitts. That's right. Now, who is Curtis W. Pitts?
0: Curtis Pitts was—he uh, was responsible for bringing Saturday Real Estate to Sub Pop. When he did that, I think he went from being a um, uh, an intern to uh, more of an A&R type scout. He got wind of us, and um, and uh, yeah, and so he was essentially he was our he was our A&R guy. Curtis Pitts, like he 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 was the best A&R guy. You could imagine. He came on. He came on tour with us.
1: Wow. You know.
0: Yeah. He got in the van and did some of our initial tours, and uh, we had some real great times with uh, with Curtis. And he was a lot, a lot different from us. He was um, a little bit more of a, a hippie. Um, yeah,
1: Curtis. Curtis. Amazing. Wait. Well, he, he knocked Curtis. the first one out of the park, and then he started. You know, from there. That's with. I mean, you're you're an intern and you find Sunday Real Estate. That's not a bad, you know, first swing at the plate. So.
0: Yeah, so they they gave him that job, and uh, he actually brought. Because we were from Los Angeles, a lot of people thought we were from Seattle just because of being affiliated with um, uh, Sub Pop. But uh, right. he brought um, Jonathan Poneman to to Los Angeles. We were playing in our backyard. We were. Uh, we would just we would throw a lot of parties and, and then play in our backyard. And uh, he brought Poneman to one of our gigs in, in our backyard a barbecue, if you will, with a couple other bands. And essentially, you know, we got we got signed out of our backyard.
1: That is not a common story. <laughs> <That> <laughs> not a lot of bands get signed out of the backyard.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it was it was such a great time. You know, uh, we would do that a lot. There was. A couple other bands in town that um, were our friends, like sister type bands, and we would go play their backyard and they'd come play our backyard, and they were always really good shows. You know, I mean, we would play the clubs as well, um, but those were always really fun, great things that that we would do. You know, those were probably, I mean, those were some of the best best moments. Everyone just um, being young and just, you know, drinking, partying, seeing the band. the Thousand Mona Lisas would play with us. There was another local band. The Campfire Girls would play with us. Uh, Black Market Flowers was another LA band at the time that would, uh, would play with us. Yeah, but at that time, we had been... Um, we had toured uh, quite a bit off of, of a publishing deal that we did. We immediately went, went on the road and uh, just started touring. I mean, you know, for a local Los Angeles band. We, we we left L.A. We went to New York and we just started touring the country. We, uh... That Boys Life EP was something that we recorded at our publishing company because they had a, um, you know, 16-track... It wasn't a two-inch. It was a, a smaller tape machine. I forget what, what it called. You guys probably know. How many inches would the tape have been?
1: Quarter? I, I... Honestly... We've been... Well, what, we recorded on DATS.
0: <laughs> oh, oh.
1: Or ADATS. Really, am, I
0: that much, am, I, am I that much older? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. We we're, we're Just, just a couple that. years. This is a, yeah, this was a 16-track, uh, you know, quarter-inch or, you know, it wasn't a two-inch, and uh, we recorded... We just recorded up there. They would let us demo. It was a publishing company, so we would just demo, 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 and uh, mm-hmm. we threw a demo... Oh, look, Michelangelo just texted me, and we threw together a... Uh, Essentially, which became Boy's Life. We threw it together and toured it. it and then it became, um, okay, he said, okay. Okay, I'm so going to tell, sh- tell him that you're calling him. This is going to get way more fun with him.
3: <laughs> okay.
0: Because he actually knows stuff.
1: Well, this is the perfect time and to it, jump in then with this.
0: So this is perfect. Leave this on there. I'm, hey, by the way, I'm a total fan of your guys' show. I'm really stoked you guys are doing this. And oh. uh when I first got the, uh, just let him text me back. When I first got the email that, you know, that, uh, you were interested in doing this, I was like, it, cause I'm, I think I'm probably the biggest Plexi fan. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and then so to, to, to hear him send me the email, I was like, yeah, you know, definitely, you know, um, call. And then, uh, I started listening and, the 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 thing that was the coolest about listening to what you guys do is you guys are doing reviews on records that to me they're just they sum up that period you know for me it's just it's everything that that's why I'm the biggest Plexi fan because of the the moment the, that that moment in time that 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 was so amazing to me I mean I remember listening to the the interview that you guys did on um, Bark Market. You know, mm-hmm. and you guys are going through each song and you're going, uh, you know, Dave Sardi did this. And I go, uh, or you said, I think Dave Sardi produced this. And I was like, of course he did. He wouldn't let anybody else do his shit, you know?
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, to like, me, I was like, uh, I'm such a huge Sardi fan, you know? And the whole thing, you guys are saying it's too, uh, you know, grinding on you. That is on my playlist right now. It comes on, I work to it. And all of them, you know, all, all, those tunes. And I just, I don't know. I really like his, uh, I really like his vocal, all the breaths that are taken within it, but just you but it's your guys' show. That's a reminder of that period. And, uh, you know, I became a fan of it and now I, I follow it and it's, uh, I think it's really, really, really cool. So there's my, my, uh, tipping of the hat to, to what you guys are doing. I think it's really great. And I, I'm really stoked. Like I said before to, uh, with that, you guys are making plexi a part of it that's really cool and michael said okay so call it
1: okay i'm awesome. gonna do that and and thanks for all that that's you know sometimes we um we were like are we too nerdy about this stuff and then we're like screw it we're just gonna do what we want but all right no, I'm no, I'm, I, yeah.
0: yeah no i dig it and then uh you i can't remember the name of the other band but there's another guy did. and they were from seattle and Talking the L7 comes up. He was talking about the Not L7. Seven Year bitch comes up. He was talking about those girls, and well, we knew all of them. It was, it was so great. You know, you're missing Celine, and you know, the guitar player and the bass player. We had such a great time being a part of that. Uh,
1: I think we. Um, I think we might have a, an, another guest on the line. Is uh, hello. Mr. Uh, hello. Hi
4: there.
1: This is Mr. Uh, Michael Angelos Joining us, the one we were just it speaking is. of not too long ago.
4: I hope you were saying nice things.
1: We were talking oh, about um, Taoist retreats and go-go dancers.
0: Oh, that stuff! Yeah, <laughs>
4: <laughs> that stuff. Yeah, our little, um, our little made-up bio. That's <laughs> funny. Um, thanks for uh, calling.
1: Absolutely. Sorry about the um, the time confusion. Sometimes I forget that. We're in Ohio, and everybody who we call is West Coast, so right. it gets a little, sometimes it gets a little confusing, and I always try to remember to put EST after everything, but sometimes I forget when I'm doing the, when I'm sending a quick email, so, but awesome. I'm glad
4: we we're all here now. Yeah, indeed. I forget I'm in Los Angeles a lot
1: of the time, so. We were just discussing... Well, I think we left off we were somewhere around we hadn't even gotten to the album being released yet. We are doing the history of the band and we were talking about Curtis Pitts and about oh, his I contribution. Yes,
4: he was a, I think he was like the sub-pop employee of the year or something like that. He literally worked in the stock room and they made him an A&R guy.
0: Because he found 20 Day Real Estate, right? Uh-huh. Yep, yeah, it was all through those guys. Curtis is, Curtis is
4: amazing. He's like a survivor. I think he like lives now he like lives in like eastern Washington on like a plot of land and sells goji berries or grows goji berries I mean he was like uh, an off-the-grid fella from the early days
1: he's like a survivalist did...
4: yeah exactly I never quite I was always interested to see he's into our band because I was like but you're like mr like I'm gonna like grow stuff and hippie dippy guy but yeah he was our he was our champion nothing like a hippie with a credit card and an expense account. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's like Santa Claus. Exactly. I, say, I didn't. I didn't. I was gonna say it, but I didn't want
0: to. That's what we used to, we used to call him, CC. Nice. Yeah, because he had a credit card.
1: <laughs> we were just at the point at which the album was about to be recorded. So late '95, '96. That's when the album's recorded, uh, the debut for Sub Pop, and then uh-huh. I read that there were some personnel changes at Sub Pop which forced a delay to the release of the album in to October 96. is that true? I
4: don't re- I don't remember honestly, I mean from what if, I think it had to do with their deal if, 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 if I remember correctly, they had done this deal with Warner Brothers, which was sort of like the influx of cash that they sort of you know signed us and you know kind of got really behind the super suckers and they kind of wanted to come out big and i think it had more to do with their um i don't even know if i should be saying this i feel weird <laughs> i think it had to do with them figuring out their business with warner brothers more than anything else mm-hmm. cuz um the people there were were the staff there from what i remember were pretty much there was a there was a core group of sort of sub pop people that had been there forever and then they brought in some new people to kind of come in and as they grew uh their offices were awesome though it was fun going up there I mean, it was literally like it was like we'd won like the uh the, the mtv grunge contest or something even you know, going up to their to their offices it was <laughs> cool.
2: they, they're just handing out f- uh, free flannel
4: yeah exactly <laughs>
2: <laughs> nice how big how big yeah, of an operation were they at that time
4: uh, uh it, like, it was three floors. It was three floors. Wow. Three floors. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. They were. They were. I mean, they're doing great now. I mean, they have got. Um, they did great. Then like postal service and the shins and all that stuff. They, they're doing mm-hmm. all right now. But it was. It was an interesting time for them. They were. They were just figuring out their thing. And. Um. But yeah. So I don't know why the album got delayed. And I remember it was kind of boned us in the end that it came out in October because it felt like a it came out late in the year and it felt like an old record within two months. Cause the holiday, you know, it was like the new year it happened. Right. Um, yeah. Cause I think we were, we were trying to sell that record in 97 and it was a 96 release basically. But, you know, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. Nobody, <laughs> nobody does, you know?
1: Hey, well, you and, know what you're doing after you've been successful and then, but if you're, yeah, you know. exactly. But nobody you know can tell you how now. to do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It
2: all makes sense now. Yeah, at the time, sure it didn't. So uh, after that, you uh, you toured with a number of bands after the album came out.
4: Seems like we just got on like a lot of random bills. We were sort of just thrown out there into the world and just sort of like would get on various bills with different bands and different acts and stuff like that. The weirdest tour that we went on that made no sense at all was Smash Mouth and Sugar Ray.
1: Oh boy.
4: Yeah, and that was—it was really, really the weirdest thing ever. And I don't know how that happened. And both of their—that was like right, right at the sort of, you know, it was right when like the '90s sort of went peachy clean. You know,
3: mm-hmm.
4: yeah. It was like everyone sort of stopped hating themselves, and they all just wanted to fly. You
2: know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, we, we, you know, we went on tour with those bands because that was when we had left Sub Pop and went to uh, Atlantic. And right. We, we had left, a yeah, because they they transferred
4: us over to Atlantic pretty much like mid '97 and tried to make it an official Atlantic release, and then they they threw us out with those those bands. And
1: how, how does that work when you? when you already released an album on Sub Pop and then they re-release it on Atlantic, is there, like, a new... Do you get a new advance for that? Is there... How does that work exactly? Because we've read about a lot of bands in doing the show that would put out an album and then two years later or a year later it gets re-released by a major. And I'm, I'm we hear that all the time, but we don't have no idea of, like, how that actually works.
4: I don't know if we got an influx. We may have gotten an influx of cash. I mean, it felt like there was, like, We we never made any money, but we had, like, what at the time was, like, for, like, a 25-year-old in 1996, you know, we all got, like, somehow got, like, $1,500 a month, which was, like, if you had a girlfriend that would, like, buy smokes for you, you know, was, like, Mm -hmm. just enough to kind of, you know, and paid the rent was, like, enough to sort of swing by, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah,
1: 1996, Uh, that's not bad, or seven.
0: We all lived in a house together, so that you mean the rehearse, We rehearsed in a room. The house was paid for. We were just always practicing. But I think that when Atlantic came along, it, the, it, the what big influx we got was in touring. You know, we were we were enabled to tour more through that through that Smash Mouth tour, and uh, just it, Norm was able to kind of go. All right, we can do this these next set of tours, and then come home and do more demos and work on the next record and i mean he kept us so busy you know we're always you know like it was like the next thing we were doing moving into the next studio to do demos or whatever so i know that norm got something to be able to 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 keep us afloat like you said with that fifteen hundred dollars a month or whatever it happened to be you know
1: that's you know that's more than i think most bands today are getting in terms of uh you know, unable to survive. They're pulling it it off of uh, iTunes.
4: Yeah. I mean, it was a different landscape back then. I mean, I, I look at, you know, I mean, I'm totally, uh, I, I mean, I couldn't have gone further. I produce commercials now for a living, you know, so like, I'm like, couldn't be straighter, but the, the kids. And I talk to people that do do music now, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm not going to lie. You know, I had pictures of Jimmy Page on my walls when I was growing up. I wanted the jet. You know what I mean? Like I
3: wanted, to <laughs> off,
4: you, know? I wanted to... <laughs> you know. I wanted all this shit, you know. And it's like now, unless you know you you know dress yourself up in a meat dress or you know your 15 year fifteen-year-olds that can dance, you know, it's it's not going to happen. You know, it's it's a lot, it's a lot of work, and and we worked our asses off. Don't get me wrong. You know what I mean. But there was a, there was a, a there was more promise. You know, there were. Than, than there is now. But on the same token, I think what you have now is that is that you can be more in control of your situation. And if you can somehow penetrate through the 20,000 other people that are making albums in their apartments on Logic or iTunes or, you know, uh, and can, um, you have more control. And you can probably even make a little bit more, see a little bit more money because you're not kind of, you know, all we were is getting ourselves into debt. You know, all a record deal was, you know, it still is to some degree, it's just a, it's a line of credit, you know?
1: Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it, it, that's what bands don't realize, is that they do have to pay the money back at some time. <laughs> it's not like yeah, it's just it's a free money. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, not an really, because int- we never
4: did. <laughs> oh. Yeah, exactly, but it's, a, it's an interest-free loan, you know? Right.
1: So... Actually, record label was like the worst banks in the world. They lend you money and then they oh. go, "Okay, just all right, never mind, go away, <laughs> go away." <laughs> I, think,
0: uh, I, think the, I think the publishing company signed me twice. They signed they signed Flexi, and then you know we disbanded and and uh, formed another band. And I called Eric Greenspan and I go, "Am I off my deal? Am I free?" And he goes, "Yeah, you're free. Why?" I go. Okay, and I called uh, uh, John Lloyd, and I said, "Hey, you should come hear my new band." He brought me in, and they signed me again.
3: Yeah, <laughs> uh, nice.
0: You know, with no strings to what I had done with with Plexi. You know, so
2: it's another, often said that uh, the publishing deals are better than the record deals. Is that is that the case for you? You think?
0: No, because I mean, you know, in, in hindsight, I mean, you know, I. I became friends with one of the Guns N Roses guys and I mean they never they never sold their publishing and that's why today that I mean I would watch Duff just get more and more money. I mean to this day he still owns his publishing. He doesn't share it with anybody. Right. You know? right. but, yeah. I mean, he literally has a house built of money. Like literally just cash. His house is <laughs> right. just
4: made hundred dollar <laughs> bills. walls. He's just, tri- he's just
0: yeah, tripping over baskets
3: a deep deep of
0: cash. <laughs> of cash. You know, it's like I certainly wouldn't suggest it, but it allowed us to do what we did, which was just take our dream and take it to the road. I mean, we we like Michael said, we were we work hard. I mean, you know, when we weren't just an LA band that was like, oh, hey, you know, we're gonna get a record deal and wow, now look, see, we're gonna be on MTV. We actually took the money, made an EP, uh, you know, licensed it to our friends, who put it on on Boys Life, went toured it. I mean, we toured a we toured a tape that we that, that we made at Brownies, you know, live at Brownies, and. Um, I mean, that, that, it was the epic, and we used to sell that tape, um, at shows, and then we did The Boy's Life, or or we did our own EP, and then licensed it to Boy's Life, they released it, then we we came to Seattle because of Brian Buscemi, did another EP on IFA, toured that, I mean, we were, we were taking these chunks of cash that we got from publishing, we were touring, we were running around, and we were letting, you know, people like Pop know, hey, look, we're gonna fucking play. We want to play we're not afraid to go on the road we don't expect you to give us anything just you know let us continue to do what we're doing We'll you know we'll work for it and um you know they ended up buying ifa and i believe re-releasing it and when and even even when we got the first thing we said when we signed the Pop, they were like good let's go do a record we said no we want a tour and we we went out and toured for a little while longer uh, the ifa ep um, and they released a single Remember, the uh, that was the craziest single. I had caught up and something else on it. And, yeah. uh, I, can't, I can't believe it. I listened to that song. I'm like, what were we doing? And, but uh, we toured that for a little bit, and then we were, when we were done with that, then we came home and, uh, and did the record, which we decided to do at, at Ardent with um, the guy that did uh, Gentlemen, um, Afghan Wings.
1: Jeff Powell. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: We were going to bring him yeah. up. Because we actually have a shared history with him.
4: Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, we have, uh, we have a shared history with Jeff Powell
1: also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we crashed his we crashed his car. <laughs> oh really? That sounds like a more interesting history than ours.
4: Can I have the keys to your car real quick? We didn't even ask. We. No, oh, no, we did. We did. I said, "Can I have the keys to your car real quick?" <laughs> oh right, we but did. it wasn't. We didn't. We didn't. We didn't really clarify that we were. Gonna go buy drugs with it. That we were gonna go looking for drugs.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
4: and we literally took the guy's car to go find drugs in in uh, Memphis. And we, you know, we like broke every rule. Like I think we like let like there's this shit. You know, I don't I don't know how you know these guys, but you just, there's just rules like when you're d- d- drug, you know, drug buying drugs. First of all, you never let the guy in your car. We let the guy in the car, I and mean, then you never give him the money. And, and until you know he has the stuff, and we like let the guy in the car. We gave him some money. He said he'd be right back. <laughs> and the guy came back. He handed us some stuff. And we're driving to Jeff's car, and we've been gone for a while at this point. And um, and then I go, "This is this is it's not drugs. It's it's dirt." And Barrington goes, "What are you talking about?" And just and went to go look at it, and then didn't took his eyes off his road off the road, and it was
0: just like, bam. We <laughs> fucked oh. up his car
3: What you
4: hit <laughs>
0: Bad. Yeah, they hit us I was driving right. And, and uh, I looked in my This is what I meant The Michaels were always getting trouble And Norm was being Norm Norm was actual, actually at the studio Mixing the record with the guy my, Michael and I were up to these shenanigans I, I you know in, in Memphis They have this fucking This, uh, this lane That is on or off you know, and they'll shine it green, or shine it red, or I don't know. And and I, you know. Oh, it's
4: like one time it's it, it changes the direction. Like it's either going one way or not. Like
0: it's yeah, it's arbitrary.
1: Yep, I know yeah, what you're talking it's
0: about. Like the, it's like the suicide lane. So, anyways, I, I was, the lights kind of hung in a different part of the road. You know, no real excuses. You know, but I I I leaned, I, I leaned down and and looked into his lap for whatever reason, and uh, when I looked up. I guess I had blown a light, and uh, this lady was, she was doing like 50, and um, she hit Michael's side of the car. We spun around, airbags went off, the car was like, Burr! she had it off into a hole. I thought I killed Michael. I was like, oh shit, I killed Michelangelo's, and you know he he said whoa like he looked up and goes whoa because he saw the car and it literally sounded like he went whoa.
3: <laughs>
0: you know because yeah. just everything just all motion and the car spun around and we had some some you know, some stuff on us and i proceeded to throw them all away because i thought we were going to jail and um when we go to jail for this now
1: <sighs> I
3: think the uh, statute of limitations we to,
0: are up. We went to the emergency
4: thing, I think, and I and I tried to hustle the doctor out of some, um, narco- you know, some code or anything, and he, like, wasn't buying it.
0: We got pissed. Michael had the, uh, the audacity to go, I'm hurting everywhere, man. I'm kind of, you know, my my that stuff doesn't work with my stomach very well. Yeah, I had
4: a whole thing, like, uh, ibuprofen, I see spots. Um, <laughs> uh, Acidaminophen, you know, hurts my kidneys. Like, I had every everything narrowed down to just give me the stuff with the good stuff in it. And he was just like, yeah, you're not that bad. He was just like,
3: no, he you
0: he, he was your, he, he pissed off, and Norm got pissed off at us too. He's like, "This is fucking unbelievable!" I, <laughs> you know, poor poor Jeff Powell. I mean, the dude was a saint, you know. And as a sweet guy. I, know. <laughs> I mean, and we were, we were, we were a Los Angeles band. I mean, like Michael said, you know, uh, he, you know, we were we were party. We were into drugs. We, you know, poor poor CC. You know, he, we destroyed him as well. I mean, we we just. We just wanted a fucking party and play loud rock and roll, and he had those pictures of uh, Jimmy Page on his wall, so did I. He wanted the jet. The problem was, when we were doing the record, we acted like we were them at the fucking hotel in Hollywood, on the TVs out of the out of the fucking right. out of the room. We hadn't earned it, you know. And uh, but I mean, it made for the it made for that sound, you know, that that came out of us. And uh, I mean, I truly believe it. I wouldn't I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, it. it uh, I mean that the destruction that you know that that was going on and Michael would put it into lyrics you know so well and I, you know I would uh, follow his lead on on uh, you know guitar trying to create a, an environment that was you know sad and somber and fucking destructive is what he was speaking about but it was it was all very it was all very real you know I mean it was it was honest and and uh and people knew that. Even even the Smash Mouth, uh, you know, Sugar Ray guys. I remember when we did our first sound check with them. They walked out and they were like, "What in the fuck is it going on?" Because we were just banging our guitars against the, the amplifiers and you know letting them you know feedback. And they were very controlled and everything had to be right. And we were chaos, you know.
2: So were they and, uh, were they into you guys, or were they more of get these guys off our tour? kind of attitude. By the,
0: end of the, by the end of the tour, they loved us. In the beginning, they came out and they said, what the fuck is going on? By the end of the tour, we were on the bus. We got out of our van, we were on the bus, and uh, oh, nice. you know, and they loved us. I mean, the Archers of Loaf, you know, uh, same thing. You know, I, I still listen to them to this day. I mean, we had we had the drummer, um, you know, he, he was like, fuck the Archers, and we get in our van, and he'd ride with us. You know, by the end of the tour, he was wearing makeup. You know? And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's true you know and, and, you know and you know and you know like you know you know we're fucking his hair up whatever but uh but they're great and they're great i mean there's i can't believe we toured with them i i can't believe i didn't realize they were as great a band as as i realized that they are now you know
1: well sometimes it takes a distance to yeah, sort of appreciate guys, that sort of stuff
0: yeah you guys you, you guys are uh are a uh a, a, it's what you guys are kind of all about.
2: <laughs> exactly. Right, right. That's the point of the show.
1: <laughs> so uh, let's get in the record. Yeah, let's do that. We're going to start out logically with the first song. Actually, one of the people uh, that's, uh, that is on our Facebook page had some questions about the lyrics of this song. I know it's hard to like sometimes separate you know, song from lyrics that sometimes are integral, I- integral in terms of the meaning and whatnot, but they were cu- curious about w- what the term Forest Ranger exactly means in terms of comparing Forest Ranger to various personalities such as Selman Rushdie and Che Guevara, Huey Newton, Phyllis Diller, not normally the sort of people you'd all see in a room together. Um, right. so Or hear about in a rock song. Or hear about in a rock song, right. especially Phyllis Diller. So can you talk a little bit about that and where that how that works and where that came from? Well
4: Phyllis Diller was Dave Navarro's idea. I'd like to say that it like the Forest Stranger is a play on words of Forest Stranger. Do you know what I mean? But it just sort of came out the the way that it did and I always sort of lean towards the, the, the phonetics and the cadence of how uh, words were sort of structured within melody was always interesting to me and, and I was read and this is going to sound really wacky but like uh, it turned out Paul McCartney worked and that's why his lyrics were sort of bananas sometimes you know mm-hmm. but um, I mean in in, in truth I, I just sort of liked the I like the idea of just sort of summoning these sort of random people of, of various sort of value and kind of taking away their in a way sort of taking away their power and their seriousness by by making it all seem kind of random you know and and you know and a little bit it's a little bit of a sort of Bowie, sort of like cotton paste kind of thing do you know what I mean where
3: mm-hmm. you know
4: it, it was so I, I liked the idea of playing with these words and I sort of liked how the how, ambivalent the whole thing ended up sounding.
3: <laughs> you know what
4: I mean? And if you always ask me like what it meant, and I, and I I think I used to have more clever answers than I have 18 years later, you know? But I do remember there being a, a the, the, certainly the interest in the phonetics, the idea of taking these sort of random characters in history and mishmashing them and uh, having no significance and the kind of Bowie, thing of really just, you know, playing with sentences and words, you know, I mean, Bowie can make the most nonsensical thing. I don't know if you guys are into Bowie, but he make the most nonsensical thing reek with so much, you know, emotion and power, you know, and 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 I was always interested in
1: that. I think Bowie was something that we were thinking of in terms of not just the sound, but also the look of the band. I mean, we, we heard a little bit of a little bit of a lot of different influences from the Glamish Bowie and maybe like T-Rex to one of the things that we heard and especially uh, in the guitar tone and kind of feel of this song is um, the UK bands from the early 90s like My Bloody Valentine and Swerve Driver, Ride those sort of shoegaze bands using the vibrato. of bands that were especially this for you um michael b uh in terms of what you're going for guitar wise would were those sort of bands that you were leaning on or looking towards
0: in in all honesty um i grew up i grew up a metal kid um, I grew up listening to to Judas Priest. Shit, more embarrassing metal than that. I mean, I still listen to Judas Priest, but especially the rock and roll, kind of early stuff. But none of that
1: I is embarrassing. A
0: <laughs> I, I grew up, a, I grew up a total metal kid, and I uh, moved to Los Angeles. You know, pushed by my father. You know, to uh, come out here, and you know, I came out here wanting to be in a, in a rock band, and unfortunately. I was not a good rock guitar player. And times uh, started changing, and I played the best I could. I mean, you know, people, those were the best solos I could play. I leaned on the delay because <laughs> it helped. I, I leaned on the vibrato because it helped. I found that it was something I good, I was good at. Um, Michael and Norm created a, a platform, uh, especially uh, on, on when Michael started playing bass because we had some pre-years uh, where we had another bass player, and um, when Michael started playing bass, the songs became simpler because he was singing, and they just encouraged me. I'd make sound, and they liked it, and I, w- I would just lean on the effects. They uh, they were like they were like a crutch, and they became a strength. I wasn't uh, necessarily trying to emulate uh, My Bloody Valentine I, uh, after I was- after. It, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after, after, after the life of the band, you know, I was very, uh, very much grew into those bands um, that people think um, influenced me, whether it was Bauhaus or Joy Division or, uh, you know, you know, those types of, of guitar approaches. But those weren't things I grew up on that I, I knew how to do. It was uh, I mean, that was that was my best rock guitar. Uh, that I could do. I'm blown away how similar I think that um, my guitar is to even the Archers of Loaf. You know, here we were touring with them. They were a little bit more quirky about it, but it was still very, it was just very bizarre. I mean, you know, in all honesty, you know, I mean, uh, we we did a song where I'm screaming into the guitar because I just didn't know what to play on a solo. And I looked up embarrassed and Michael and Norm were, were there going, man, that was amazing and they would create they would create instances where where i I could do that and uh that was that was my forest ranger was probably my best metal song (laughs) you know
1: (laughs) there is no apologizing for any past metal influences jay and i especially jay jay way more than myself have uh deep metal roots uh, Jake, Jay is <clears throat> yeah. encyclopedic in his knowledge of, especially the <laughs> the 80s I don't L.A. Don't know well, Chip but, Midnight, who has joined us on a couple shows, he's actually the truly encyclopedic one. He can get into, like, sleazebies and describe the members of the band and stuff that we could... would never know ever about any, you know.
0: I've grown more towards punk and big and, uh, goth, kind of uh, new wave, Devo, and Eleven Rockets and things like that these days. And my punk rock friends have grown more towards, you know, steam class and rock and roll. And I'm like, man, you know, it's just, it's just funny, you
2: know. But your story yeah, in terms of cool. guitar playing is, your story in terms of guitar playing is, is, is kind of interesting for the '90s because I can totally relate to it. and I bet there's a bunch of other bands that can relate to it too in terms of you grew up watching guitar players that were, you know, super talented and to, could do all this technical stuff, yet you couldn't do it. So for a while, you're thinking, well. I'm a shitty guitar player. And then all of a sudden, like the 90s come and Kirk Cobain comes and all this new music happens. And you start, you know, I, I see Jay Maskus and I'm like, oh, wow, this guy plays guitar solos like I like, but he, you know, plays all these loud, crazy chords. And, you know, I don't technically have to be Eddie Van Halen, <laughs> you know, and I can still write songs and be in a band. So I think there's like this really cool opening of of a bunch of people that maybe thought they, you know, weren't technically good enough to be a rock guitar player and all of a sudden were able to find themselves because the music opened up so much in the 90s
0: when i was a youngster you know working in a head shop you know uh, uh, um selling you know rock and roll clothing and 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 pipes there was a very eclectic group of people that worked there and there was i was the token rock and roller we had the kid that listened to the smiths and you know the kid that listened to you know Brian, listened to the Germs, and you know, and, and just all these different kinds. Of, so I think that quite possibly those things penetrated my brain because I remember that the tremolo or the reverb might have come from uh, How Soon Is Now. Always had a huge impact on me on uh, how that vibrato just moved through the entire song. I started to discover things with 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 um, with them, but yeah, I was you know way into Van Halen, but I just couldn't do that, you know. Exactly. Um, I just couldn't. But, you know, but but I looked, did take one thing from Eddie Van Halen, and that was a 100 watt Marshall head turned all the way the fuck up. <laughs> Something from Jimmy, Jimmy Page, which is throw a Fender Twin in there and let it tremolo and use an Echo Flex. And mm-hmm. so I felt like I was very akin to uh, Eddie Van Halen, Jimmy Page, and Pete Townsend, you know, so. Um, it, it, it was more of a tonal thing. I mean, I was m- my strength, especially live, was tone. You know, I'd have the greatest guitar players come to me and go, "Man, your tone is fucking amazing," and that was that, that was my strength is to where, you know, they played way better than me, but they didn't have a good tone. You know, and and mm-hmm. even today, it's it's all about the choice of amp, guitar. That was the first thing that Michael said to me to answer a question. You. Asked uh, uh, on the, uh, the history of the band, how Michael and I met, um, the, the true answer is that, you know, Michael was in, 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 in other bands and um, had met a, a guy named Desi Benjamin. And I had met this guy. He was like a local uh, manager, if you will, in town. He used to manage one of Michael's uh, bands, and he managed one of my bands who gets gigs, whatever. He kind of found uh, Mark Curry uh michael played in the daisy chamber and we all rehearsed in the same room but i had never met michael one day michael needed a guitar player and he called desi and he goes man i need a guitar player it inspired my guitar player and Desi said look no further it's it's michael Barrigan and he called me and michael goes uh, hey man desi says uh you're my new guitar player and the first thing he said to me was what do you play and i was like i play les paul and he goes what kind of amp and i said a marshall and I mean, he liked that, you know. He he liked the the. the and he said, "What kind of music are you into?" And I'm like, "Well, wow, it was really one of the most the most inspirational things I ever saw that sticks with me and stuck with me through the entire PLEXI. He's live at Pompeii. I remember that was in that first conversation. You know, he's like, "What are you into?" And I was like, "Well, I'm really into live at Pompeii." And you know, Michael's very into Floyd, even so much more than than I was at the time. He introduced me to the Sid, Sid Barrett era of it. And um, that's truly where those, those sounds um, came from. And the first band that I really heard um, for me that you could be a rock guitar player and play guitar a bit differently wasn't uh, Nirvana. It was, uh, it was Jane's Addiction. Um, it was hearing how you had this wild vocalist that was, couldn't even sing but found his strength and mm-hmm. made it really work. For me as a rock guitar player i heard loud guitar screaming delay solos and a wild vocalist and yeah. i was like oh maybe there's a light maybe there's a light for me outside of van halen you know mm-hmm. or, or uh kk and glenn tipton <laughs> <You know? laughs>
2: they were just ahead of nirvana and they really bridged the gap between that the sort of 80s glam metal, pop metal stuff and and alternative music for sure. I think cuz they were such competent musicians as well.
1: Um but very so reserved in their playing. So you just mentioned that you were using a a Marshall and a and a Les Paul when you guys got together. Is that uh, This sort of leads me into tracks. Tracks 2 and 3, I have sort of a joint question on. Was that what you were using as far as recording because uh, one of the things that we were both commenting uh, commenting on when we were reviewing the album ourselves was, Roller Rockham has a huge chorus that just gets big and anthemic. I guess the first question was was the guitar rig, the Les Paul and the, and the Marshall. And then the second question is, when you were in the studio, did you guys realize how pop oriented those choruses are? Because those are the ones that like really stuck with me in terms of um, the overall album. Because I think they're just they've got hand claps and tambourines, and it sounds like you're going for a real like pop effect in the chorus.
4: I wanted those to be real tongue and cheek. You know, I wanted it to sort of have that sort of brattiness of like, you know, T-Rex and the early Bowie stuff, you know, um, and the poppiness and that sort of like, that that energy to it, that sort of fun, and ideally in the dichotomy of sort of a darker themed material. Do you know what I mean? so that, you know, I never wanted it to take itself too seriously. You know, we're all, we're all dying and miserable, let's have, you know, but it's sort of funny, isn't it? You know what I mean? Type of, type of thing. So that was certainly intentional uh, for me. Uh, Roller Rock Cam, I mean Roller Rock Cam was built thematically around, you know, I asked Michael Barrett because I wanted to write, I wanted it to be a T-Rex song and I was like, name me some car parts, you know? And he was like, well, you know, and he said, like, was like, well, there's roller rocker cams. And I'm like, that's cool, you know. And, and I kind of kind of built off of that, this, you know, so sort of like this idea of like sort of, you know, a name concept for a pop song, which is like, uh, you know, I just want to get in my car and drive, you know what I mean? But like mm-hmm. a kind sort of a self-awareness to it and fun. You
0: know, uh, I mean, roller rock cam to me, it was, Michael singing about an engine that I owned at the time. Uh, I bought it with our publishing money. It was a dual quad, tunnel ram, and it was roller. It was a roller motor. So, and I just, I just said those words and he turned it into, you know, a pop sense. He always had a real, uh, you know, it's very simple uh, way of kind of getting right to the the popness of it, but then wanting uh, to be really dramatic in his vocals and he would uh, allow me to to, to be dramatic with the guitar as well. A lot of times in verses and things, I would just emulate what I felt, you know, he was saying. I mean, he was he was my voice, you know, and um, I loved his lyrical content. I, I remember on that first audition that I, I talked to you about our introduction, he sent me a demo, and um, um, that was the, uh, the Sunlight on My Fingers song, Michael. I don't remember what it was called, but I was just... I didn't play guitar on it, but I was entranced by his his vocals and and the way that they were poppy and sad and and it, I just really related. So you know he would he, Michael would usually kind of take us to those like quick couple chords in the chorus that um, were massive, and then we'd vamp on these dramatic verses. And I mean, you know, Plexi to me, you know, it was it was so much the three of us, you know. Uh, we could walk in a room right now, and there's a song, there's a song that would come out of that room. And it's, it's interesting because Michael has his T-Rex, like what he wanted to be tongue-in-cheek, but then you had Norm that is just this bombastic jazz, crazy circus drummer, which is probably the only truth in the bio is that he was in the circus. And-
3: <laughs>
2: Wait, the guy in the circus was the, also the guy that had his shit together?
0: Yeah, yeah. And he was, you know, and he was, you know, he was a really, he was really great. He, was, he reminded me of Keith Moon. He, I mean, honestly, wow. I, I just, I hated Norm. I fucking hated him. I used to had to tour in a, in a van with him, and I just, I really hated everything about him. But when he would play his drums, it was the most amazing thing. I remember, I remember Michael watching him at a soundtrack, and he looked at me and he goes, That's our drummer. And I was like, I know he would just you know they'd be like, Can we get a kick, can we get a tongue, can you go through the whole kit? And he would just do this Keith Moon shit and it was you know, it was insane. So but this this sound would make it, it would it would just it made a plexi, you know, it was Michael's tongue in cheek, Michael's you know, very dark take on, on life and I related to it obviously because I ran with him with the with the drugs and uh I mean we split a lot of things equally, even the girls at times became split equally, you know? You know, and, and uh Remember, we walked into a strip bar in uh, in Memphis, making that record, and this girl was drawn to me right away. And I was like, "Well, you know, you're drawn to him too, right?"
1: (laughs) I'm getting a sense of like the Motley Crew of the '90s. That's what I'm. That's this is sounding a lot like The Dirt. We have just we We tried. You
4: know, I mean, the thing is, is that is that like I, I I. I didn't know this at the time, but, like, basically the change that happened in the 90s is all of a sudden you had kids that actually, that, like, went to school and were sort of nerdy, like, became, you know, rock stars. Do you know what I mean? And, like, I grew up in Hollywood. Like, I didn't go to fucking, you know, I didn't go to college. You know, I was, like, hanging out in the Sunset Strip, like, trying to, like, screw the girls that were getting kicked out of the Guns N' Roses, you know, rehearsal hall when I was 16. Do you know what I mean? So like, actually, no,
0: I said it early on, you know, we, we, you know, for poor Curtis Pitts, you know, the hippie from Seattle, he wore a poncho and had a compost pile and a credit card. And he got <laughs> the van. With, he got in the van with Hollywood. You know, because we were like, "Can you get us any beer or drugs or whatever?" I mean, that th- she has mescaline. Let's just go. I mean, we heard she's got mushrooms. You know, there's ecstasy. There's, you know, whatever. You know, so there was a a very Los Angeles Hollywood thing. I mean, we kind of blew Sub Pop away at, at our our um, record release. Whatever introduction to. Uh, the, the label, they were parts of the label that had just been hired or had been there, like Nils and Joyce Line- Linehan, that were like, what the fuck is going on? Why in the hell is this band on our label? I mean, Joyce Linehan hated us, hated us, for the beginning. She had Six Finger Satellite, she had all these other bands, she hated us. We we eventually won her over because we're fucking nice kids, you know? We wanted to tour, we wanted to work hard. and. You well, know, she took me and put me in a hospital when I needed her. I stayed at her house, but at first sight they were like, Holy shit I mean and Michael Michael would alarm people. He would stand them off with what he would say. They didn't understand his humor, you know, I mean, and it was like, you know, shit. It's like he's only fucking around. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Hey guys, I gotta kind of hop off for, for a second. Can I call this number and get back in or something? Because I thought it was gonna be a little later, and I gotta make a phone call right now.
1: Um, we'll have to call you, because uh, if you call okay. this, but uh, so if you work.
0: want, just text me and I'll have them call you back. Yeah. All right, cool, man. Awesome. All right, I'll be that. Right, thank you.
1: We're gonna jump to track four, I think. Right, Jay? Yeah, I think that's what I where
0: told we're you, at, you yeah. it was to more fun.
1: Oh, yes. We are getting...
0: um... I was the poo, man. I wasn't kidding. I was the one at the the record company going, can we get some lights? I think we need a light show. (laughs) And they just thought I was crazy. And then finally, one day, somebody said to us, like, you guys are kind of a dramatic band. You should get a light show. And I was like, I've been telling them that for like 10 years, man.
1: (laughs) I want to backtrack for a sec, because you said something about I don't know if you meant this metaphorically or not, but Screaming Into Your Guitar. At the beginning of track four, which is Peel, it sounds... And I, I read something about you actually singing into your guitar. Is that true? Because yeah, I've seen people do that before, but...
0: Yeah, I wouldn't call it singing, but I had 1969 SG, uh, the Echoplex on, the Fender Twin on, you know, uh, probably some tremolo in there, and the Marshall. I had volume pedals, and... The SG had a fucked up front pickup, and I, I think it was very microphonic because it was the only guitar I had that would do it well. I just kind of hollered into my guitar, and sometimes I'd repeat the lines that Michael would say um, about the girl he's talking about. But yeah, for the entire first verse until the chorus comes in, I'm um, just rubbing my hands up and down the guitar and um, and screaming into it, yeah.
2: So we have a friend that has a uh, Telecaster from the 60s that he can do that with. And it has some kind of, like, the pick guard is the actual pickup. So I'm guessing maybe the SG was the same kind of setup. Because I've never been able to do that with any other guitar. (laughs) Like, yell into it and have it make a sound. I would
0: use my 69 SG. It was a front pickup. It it just picked it up well. It was was the stock pickup. You know, it had the, like, the chrome cover on it. It just picked up my voice really well and then you know i would always i became a the, the delay became such a crutch for me um because it would help me get through solos because it would you know sustain notes or whatever and i kind of learned mm-hmm. to play w- within them and it did the same thing when i was talking into it you know you just you know you just say hello and it was just like it was just this beautiful washing kind of blown out you know washing sound which um has become popular with you know other bands now, I think, that are emulating uh, Jesus and Mary Chains and Eleven and Rockets, like uh, A Place to Bury Strangers, kind of to me has that huge, huge sound. You know, and it's mm-hmm. you can strum an A chord, but man, you strum an A chord through two amplifiers. You know, they're two doing two totally different tones. You know, one's clean, one's dirty, one's reverb one's they both got the delay on them, and it just becomes a massive, massive.
2: Uh, chord, you know Yeah, well, a band that I, I kind of heard When I listened to you guys was uh, Black Rebel Mo- Motorcycle Club, and obviously they came After you, and Part of it is, I think, the f- uh, just the Format of the band, you know, I think the uh, Michael A, the bass parts Are very melodic and carry um, A lot of the melody, and then over Top you're doing all the effects and adding all The atmosphere, and I think it's in a lot of Ways the same formula that they have In terms of, you know, just sonically what's going On it I, I, I almost made me wonder if those guys were showing up at your shows <laughs>
3: when
0: well, you guys were playing. They were a Los Angeles band, and and it's not the first time that I've heard that. I mean, I'm a I'm a fan, and if if that were true, I'd be I, I'd, I'd be honored um, uh-huh. because I'm a fan of that of that sound. Um, mm-hmm. I think that. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry to digress, but, you know, that same person that introduced me to Michael, Desi Benjamin, uh, there was a point in time when we, uh, we had a bass player. He needed a guitar player, and then he called me, and we, we, we essentially became Plexi, and then Michael uh, fired the bass player. I was gone, you know, and, and all of a sudden I came to rehearsal, and I was like, where's Jonathan? And uh, he's like, you know, he's gone. We need another bass player. And he just looks at me, and goes, call Desi, tell him we need a bass player. And I called Desi, and I go, hey, man, um, I need a bass player. You know, Michael fired Jonathan. uh, Can can you find somebody? And he said, sure. He hung up the phone, and two minutes later, the phone rang, and he goes, I found your bass player. And I said, "Uh, well, who is it? And he goes, it's Michael. And I go, Michael who? And he goes, it's Michael Angelos. And I go, Michael plays bass? And um, he goes, yeah. And um, I hung up, I called Michael, and I said, uh, Angelus. And uh, he goes, yeah. And I go, uh, does he find our bass player? And he goes, who is it? And I go, it's you. <laughs> and, Michael, <laughs> and Michael said, uh, oh, Did he hang man. up and then call? <laughs> yeah, and, Mike, and Michael, you know, Michael said, oh, man, I don't want to play bass again. But, uh, you know, we went to rehearsal, and that's when it happened. I mean, that's, that's when everything that we're talking about, that was the first moment that it happened. He played that simple melodic he was he is and was a a great to me uh a bass player and he is influenced uh by the 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 right things and he just puts it all together and then his his voice was in there beautifully and it, it just all it all slowed down and it all got heavier and all got darker and he wasn't the guy that would say, turn down. He was. The, he wouldn't say it today. If we were going to go play a gig, the sound man would go, hey, can you turn that Marshall down? And I would ignore him, and Michael would just laugh because <laughs> we're not gonna, and we never did, you know? Um, right. I mean, that was, sometimes it was, you know, a problem, but, you know, it was It was what we are, and, and that's why I said I like the place to very strangers. Sheesh, you can hear that sheer sheer volume just crushing through the speakers even in the recordings and we recorded with big amps as well i was trying to emulate and 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 and, 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 and oddly enough that eddie van halen did you know you you heard you heard those speakers just yep. flopping you know just just crunching and moving i just i mean that was a that was a great that was a marshall amp just trying to survive. I mean, he was using a variac, you know, trying to power it down and turn it up more, you know, it, and uh, he, I mean, he was supplying it the wrong power, you know. It was on its way to blowing up. <laughs> you I mean, can't that's,
2: fake that sound.
0: Yeah I, mean, and that's, yeah, I mean, I mean, I played a 57 Les Paul Jr. It was... Uh, when I got that, I was like, "Fuck!" You know, the '57 Les Paul Junior. There was no more Les Pauls after that. It was the '57 Les Paul Junior that I got for seven hundred bucks. You know, oh man. Um, through through those Marshalls and Twins and and um, and I played, I think, on the Super Six. Uh, so it was essentially a, a like a, a, a Twin on steroids. You know, six speakers in it. It stood very nicely next to a uh, a Marshall because it was uh, half stack. Because so it was the same size. You know, and it was beautiful looking, you know? It just shimmered and tremoloed. It was like the biggest tremolo rig you could walk in with. And it was louder than the fucking Marshall, you know?
2: On track seven, I'm sorry, where are we at now? We're on five. five. Yeah. Um, it, it, this starts to take on almost like an industrial feel. Not only the bass lines um, sort of having that melodic sense to them and being very driving and simple, but there's something going on with the drums on that song that really give it... I don't know if there's a distortion on the snare or if it's a trigger or, or a sample of some sort, but it sort of, it starts to maybe uh, reveal that maybe an industrial ministry, Nine Inch sort of influence that might be within the
0: band. Oh, we're talking about Dayglo. Um, yeah. yeah. For me, I was just, uh, what did I do? I mean, there was, uh, I don't know, the, the, the chords and the chorus, the way they moved along, it almost was, I don't know, I just dug it. It was just kind of cool how it cruised through that, that, the verse. I remember the chords, the way that they moved through. Um, We're just trying to be ambient and dark in the verse. in the studio that wasn't um well the song we did live and it sounded one way but when we went into the studio it took this entirely other shape because i was so into this delay thing that i keep talking about and the shimmering kind of angel guitar type of sound where you didn't know where it was coming from like fuck. What? my favorite thing that i would ever do on guitar was the thing i didn't play that would come through the speakers you know mm-hmm. It's like I didn't make that chord I didn't make that sound that's just the amp just did that and somehow I was able to make it happen over and over sometimes slightly in a different place but you would get the picture but in that one song I remember getting a, um, a country tuned guitar it was a six string it was kind of tuned Somewhere in between it's what the country guys use, you know somewhat tuned in between all the guitars It's really high and I ended up playing like an open that. tuning. Um, I think it was an open or regular or tuning I, I can't exactly remember. I started playing a lot with tunings. that was another thing I did it again in a upcoming song you might mention to forget um, I, I like playing with tunings because they would ha- they would help me um the uh, change was in open tuning, but it was just—it was just that guitar. It was like a, they, they use it a lot in country bands. It's kind of like that in-between tone, you know, like a baritone mm. bass, you know. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but it's a uh, but it's a guitar that's that they'll just kind of play play leads on, and it's not tuned standard. It's not a regular guitar. It's uh, might be tuned a pitch or so above. And uh, mm-hmm. I remember playing just plugging it into my rig. I mean, on our record, I played a a, a, a pedal steel. You know, but I, oh, I just plugged it into my rig. And guy walks in with a pedal steel. I looked at him I'm like, "This is awesome." I mean, I couldn't play any instrument, but I could make <laughs> them all sound cool. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Like technically, I can't play keyboards. You know, uh, technically, uh, you know, I can't really play guitar, but I can make it sound cool. You know, so I just plugged that that fucking pedal steel and that and that country guitar on D'Angelo into uh into my rig. You know, and just you know, played with the pedals that I had in front of me, which was really only uh, an Echoplex, a microsynthesizer, the Fender Twin had the reverb in it, Marshall was the gain. I mean, it was it was that simple. I mean, there wasn't really any more pedals than that. So did
2: you, know? you have any, um, I guess, reservations about pulling this stuff off live? I mean, with that much gear in, involved in, and just sort of you're 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 saying as you're performing, like magic's happening. Did you ever feel like as you're doing this and putting the stuff down on records, like, oh shit, we got to go out and plug this stuff live? Am I going to be able to reproduce this, or are we going to have to do it a different way? Do you remember going through some of that?
0: The only song I think that ever wrote myself out of it was uh, Day-Glo, Um the one that we're talking about, because. Yeah. Did, i did like maybe three different guitar parts and i was like "Shit, which one do i do you know yeah, yeah. um there's the, there's the country kind of high one there's the rhythm that i really like rhythm because i loved rhythm i mean sometimes i felt like the bass player you know because michael was kind of almost playing lead bass and yeah i would yeah. hold rhythm, you know with with norm at times more um but i think the was the only one that um that i might have struggled but I, you know we found our way through it it, it was still you know just like seeing any you know live band it was just slightly different but for the most part um i would just bring a lot of gear i mean i took my keyboards and, and brought my key I, I played my keyboards through an svt a full svt rig and through another echoplex and through that and i could manage that whilst i was playing the guitar i would just let the wow. guitar feedback i would just let the guitar feedback and delay you know when i just reach over and Spawn a couple notes on the keyboard with my elbow or something and then let the keyboard delay while I get back to the guitar and somehow it just became what we did you know and that just just worked and we kind of recorded in a in a live manner you know we would walk in and sort of record just live it there were overdubs but they were primarily just to just maybe to thicken things up and but like peel was, peel wasn't easy. It was just that's how we did it. I mean, it was, I mean the, the peel that we did the Brownies on the, the I told you we tore the tape. Mm-hmm. I and mean, that that thing, it, that that board mix that that guy at Brownies in New York gave us, it sounded, it sounded really good. I mean, I remember when we did it, you you would we would listen to the song and I'm like, fuck, this sounds amazing. It sounds like we're playing leads, you know? This is insane. And then the song band, you hear one guy go. All right, man. You guys are great.
3: You know? <laughs> <laughs> you Our two guys. hand
0: claps. <laughs> we were just—we were that band that drove to New York and played in front of a bartender. You know.
1: Oh yeah. i i know what that we feels done like. That ourselves. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Boy, let's get 7, six, a, seven, eight, Tim. You want to? Yeah. Kick well, that off? I sort of made a, a kind of um, assumption here with six seven eight because i was listening to the album you know we obviously we listened to a couple times to prepare and i was i kind of dawned on me that this almost works like a little mini suite in the middle of the the album i've got track six ordinary things and then an instrumental track in bunny at track seven and then that sort of leads into track eight and they sort of all work together as a little like there's a bridge in between the two songs and I was wondering if that was a conscious decision to link the two songs with the, with the the instrumental in between, or if that was something that was just done, you know, by happenstance when you were mixing the album and sequencing it. How did that, Work out. And am I completely off with putting those three yeah, songs uh, together?
0: Well, uh, and like I said before, I mean, Plexi was just the three of us. I mean, it's everything we did was split evenly. I mean, the, the word thirty-three and a third couldn't have been used more. It didn't matter what we did; it was thirty-three and a third. You know, um, publishing, whatever. We were we were appalled of anything. I mean, even you know, Norm was the drummer, but he, equal share. You know, we were a band, and Norm's another one of Norm's strengths was he would sequence he sequenced that record he uh listened and listened and listened and listened and listened and just walked in and goes you guys this is what i think and we listened and we're like okay it's done you know perfect um ordinary things was um michael it was uh, it was essentially a michael song he did it on his own and i came in when he was done and uh this was and i did the layers on it if there's there's some layers that are happening at country guitar with, uh, you know, re- reverbs and the, the using the, the uh, 69SG that had a tremolo on it and things like that. Um, so it's very subtle, uh, very minimal, what I did on the guitar. I mean, it's kind of massive, but minimal. I mean, the, the song on its own was done. I just added the textures when it was finished.
1: Is there a cello and, on that song?
0: Yeah, is that is that cello? Yeah, that's um, yeah that's a chick that uh, played with um, Nirvana. Oh. oh and she had her own band uh, after that it was you know she was she had like a cello kind of indie alternative cello you know driven band with um other instruments that would accompany a cello but uh, yeah she just came in once again just like me she came in after and put that layer she emulated his uh i think he, he probably recorded that song on an acoustic michael probably recorded that song on acoustic
2: oh wow Hmm. You can barely even hear an acoustic on it anymore. Is the kind of thing where you write it on an instrument, build up the song around it, and then you kind of pull back the instrument you actually wrote it on.
0: Yeah, so he, uh, he, that was that was really all Michael. I mean, that that yeah. kind of like sums up Michael, kind of like how sometimes he would walk in with something structured. We would we would do things that. I miss so much is, you know, a lot of times, a lot of guys, especially nowadays, they just do everything. They walk in, they write the song, they play the drums, they tell the drummer what to play, guitar player go like this. I think that one of your last interview guys was saying the same thing, you know, oh, this would be great, I'm doing everything on my own now, but the truth of the matter is you miss being in that room and, like, hashing through it with a band, you know, and having the, you know, playing for 45 minutes, an hour, until all of a sudden, there's the guy on the floor screaming into his guitar while the guy is standing there playing his <laughs> bass and, you know, and, and uh, you know, moving through the riff and then you get to the chorus and stand up and turn all the amps on, you know, and, and so that's why I said it felt like we recorded live. Bunny, you asked about those three tracks, um, yeah. Bunny was, was my song. It was one I did on my own. It's just, it just sums me up. I mean, I was into uh, textures and, uh bunny is just a a mosh of textures and i wasn't really singing at the time so it was it was my tribute to a girl i was dating and her nickname was Bunny and that was just the best i could do in telling her and showing her how much i loved her you know and it was and it was funny because that song went on the record because norm lying outside my room and i was gotten in a fight with the girl she left the house and of course, it's almost like I did it on purpose, because as soon as she walked out the door, I walk over, grab my guitar, turn on five ecoplexes, and start strumming something. And, you know, and Norm laid out of my room, uh, and whilst I played for the next 45 minutes or an hour or two hours, and I finally opened the door to, to almost trip over him sitting there. And he looked at me, and he goes, dude, that was fucking amazing. He said, do you remember that? But I'm like, yeah, I remember it. And he's like, we're putting that on the record. So Bunny went on the record. And, uh, you know, so Norm sequenced it to where it all made sense. And then it, uh, it moved into change, which is the second side of the record. Because my favorite thing is the vinyl. And, and the second side of the record starts at Bunny. Oh, okay. It goes Bunny and, yeah, so the first track on the second side of the record is Bunny. And to me, when I, if I grab the Plexi record, which I often do, I'll put it on on the second side and start a bunny and move into change and uh, change was a was a just like the other other plexi songs it was written by the three of us and and that's what we did that he sequenced it up to where it all just made sense.
2: No but they all do go go really well together I I think if you moved any of those to other spots it wouldn't work quite as well so uh that was uh, good work by him and, and again it's just another thing in those in the in, in bands where you have the one guy who's uh, takes the time to actually care about that kind of thing and everybody else is like well okay if you're gonna take the time to do it all right you know that's fine you sat down and well, figured out it. what the sequence should be so I'm not gonna do it <laughs> yeah, exactly you know somebody's got to do that that sounds good to me he,
0: yeah he was really you know we all had strengths you know and um, and those, the three of those strengths made up the, the one you know, the one, the one unit and that was definitely, um, he had many, you know, he kept us in order. Um, He was a very, he was a great drummer, super bombastic and loud and skippity hoppity, you know, at times, you know, and, uh, but, you know, I dug it and uh, yeah, he, uh, I mean, it should, I mean, I, I, I would have to say he probably sequenced everything from IFA to Boys Life to, to that, it was you when know, we'd go in, we'd record it, we'd bash on it, we'd leave, and you know, he'd make it happen. And uh, it was interesting. I mean, sometimes at rehearsal, I mean, I remember taking a nap, you know, and letting the two of them just hash through something. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I wasn't really sleeping, and then I would just sit up. And after 40 minutes, you know, and most people would be like, "Dude, rehearsal's over, right?" And <laughs> you know, and then. Uh, stand up and go, yeah, 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 that's it, that's it, that's it. Look, let's just play, you know, and yeah. we would get through it. So it was, uh, I mean, I, and I say I hated Norm in the most loving way I can. It was just the oversized guy in a small van, you
1: know. I think Jay and I can appreciate <laughs> hating our drummer. That's, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. drummer would do the, are, the same thing. Our yeah.
2: different breed. Unique. So Yeah. So track nine, forget, things, things pick up again. So, you know, we kind of go through this middle period where the three songs fit together a little bit more atmospheric but things pick up again and we started hearing some other bands that um, Filter, Stabbing Westward, Gravity Kills, God Lives underwater, White Zombie sort of bands that were I guess coming from a um, an industrial sort of background but doing a pop slash rock heavy metal thing over top of it were those bands that did you tour with any bands like that or did you consider them contemporaries of yours was there any like any effort to kind of bundle you, you know, with those bands at that time, or, or were you guys pretty much always the oddball out?
0: I mean, we played with Zeke, you know, when we were on when we were on IFA, you know, we played, you know, we played the most punk rock, you know, t- club that they had, you know, because Richard Lefebvre, that was the owner of IFA, he only signed us because a close friend of mine from childhood, you know, said you got to put this out and. uh you know, and, and inevitably, we were the one band that I'm still friends with him now. He's like, the funny thing is, is I wasn't really into you guys at all. He thought we were just a bunch of nonsense. But so it, it, we were the oddball man out on that label for sure. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we would play with Z. But, you know, Mark, he would come up to me at times and, you know, and kind of be like, he would tell us he liked us. You know, he'd say he's really into, you know, bands, older bands that were, you know, that, doing that type of thing, you know, that you wouldn't think he was going to come out of his mouth because it was just power, speech. shout. And I wanted to be in Zeke because I was the metal guy, you know? Mm-hmm. But I didn't, I didn't do, do it well. But um, it, it, I mean, I, I think it really did feel like we were, you know, the oddball, the band out uh, to me uh, anyways. But it didn't, you know, really stop us. We just, you know, sort of kept, Kept going after it. I mean, the Archers of Love tour that we got um, because we became friends with the drummer. Uh, I, I forget his name, but um, you, they, that led to more tours. We played with them in New York, and even playing with them, their audience was more apt to understand us. But I don't know that they did because we were very loud. We weren't. They, they would play through little twins. You know, we were playing through huge amps that were turned up. We were. And they were kind of dressed kind of college-y. And we were, you know, dressed in leather pants and, you know, wear an eyeliner for the past month. So at that time, there just wasn't a real lot of that going on. But being from, from Hollywood, it just, it wasn't even something we thought about. It just kind of started to happen. I bought a pair of leather pants because the Ramones had leather pants and I didn't have to wash them, you know. Could <laughs> um, just wear, these, to wear them the whole tour, you know. I was like these are great, you know. They don't ever yeah. get dirty. I don't have to do my laundry. Just just wipe them down, and you know, that just turned into just all all of us just. You know, we followed each other in a in a weird way. You know, there were moments when we would get into band. And, you know, you, you're in a band. You're in a van. You're touring. You're 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 driving across the country, and you know when you put that record in in the in the car when you're driving from one stop because all we're doing is driving and, mm-hmm. it, and the whole band at the same time is just blown away by by something we hear and mm-hmm. you know i remember i remember when we really got live at leeds um from the hoop and uh i was like fucking townsend it's insane you can hear the echoplex you know yeah. uh, for me i mean i never knew he really played those Kinds of solos or used using echoplex, but I can hear it. You know, I'm like that fucker. You, he's using echoplex. You know, and, mm-hmm. and, we, and it just it just moved us. So it's almost. I mean, it's almost like we were we were young when we started. <laughs> we were touring and we sort of grew up together and inspired each other. But yeah, you know, we were we were obviously influenced by lots of things. I mean, I personally, you know, when John Spencer hit, I really dug that. Kind of wildness that you know, was happening you know with the guitar and the solos that were just over the top and the tones that were over the top and uh the vocals that were very comical and poppy and you know i don't know that michael loved it as much as i did but you know yeah we were you know definitely uh moved by all these things and uh but i i, I do think that i do that do you th- do think that it felt like we never fit in i mean I remember but we were friends kind of with everybody you know i mean i stayed at uh, when we were in new york with the the guys from insane you know and we were nothing like them you know but yeah. you know being in a rock and roll band you're touring around we all party so we do that the yeah. same.
2: yeah it's just kind of funny i mean some of those bands uh, i mentioned you know they like stabbing westward was kind of big on the radio then and uh you know 95 through 97 and that's totally a band I could have saw I could have seen you guys you know touring with and opening for and that audience getting what you were doing, um, even from an image standpoint I you know I could see um, how difficult that would be in front of a Archers of the Loaf audience you know the 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 image that you guys put forward you know the L.A. kind of look um, I'm sure that was polarizing you know right from the as soon as you walked on stage um, so yeah we've seen the video
1: for forest ranger so we we, it's not exactly the when you think of arches alone if you think of the college chapel hill super chunk you know those kind of bands guys it's like it's almost like the seattle flannel but taken to the midwest or or i guess they're more south or something like that but there's not a whole lot of like quote-unquote image going on there i would imagine that was did you guys ever experience any issues with crowds sort of being like, what the F is going on?
0: It's funny that you brought that up. We had so many really weird shows. You know, uh, I was going to say fucking weird, and I didn't, but I realized I probably can. Um, yep. You know, we had so many bizarre shows. We did this show one time. We showed up in Colorado, and we were, we were opening up for Sublime. So here we go. We're opening up for Sublime. It's totally sold out. I mean, it's the packed it can be. I mean, and it's probably, I don't know. It's 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 a big theater. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a large palace type venue, and it's sold out. And we here we come. We're plexi, and and Sublime has their reputation. They're just drunk. They're drinking. They're smoking. We whatever they're doing. I remember the, the singer grabbing the the chick that's, you know, giving us hot dogs and throwing her in the garbage can and, you know, the dumpster and shutting the door and she gets out, she's all pissed off. And, you know, they're, they're doing their thing and we go on stage and we did our sound check and, you know, they were cool. You know, you want to smoke some weed, whatever. They, they didn't give a shit. and But we played for their audience and we played and we opened up with whatever song and, you know, we knew each other. We were touring, we stopped. And then you could have heard a pin drop. And we looked at each other, we didn't say a thing. And we just said, fuck this, we're not stopping again. And we played the entire set, the entire record, whatever it was. And by the end of it, we were just smashing guitars, letting shit feedback, just doing bleeding, doing anything to tell these people, go fuck yourself. You know, you and your mm-hmm. sublime. You know, and uh, <laughs> you know, I, it, I you like know, that. I mean, we we were when we were done, they cheered. You know, they they liked it, and I was like, holy shit, they actually liked us. They hated us, you know, because we didn't yeah. want to stop to hear them do that again. And right. um, I really remember it, but that, I mean, that's just that's kind of how we were. I mean, I think that we won people over, whether it was insane or uh, the the girls in seven year bitch became our friends or. Six Finger Satellite or Joyce Linehan from Sub Pop or or Nils. Um, we won them over by our work ethic. I mean, we liked to party, but you know what? We were going to show up. We were going to play. We rehearsed. We weren't afraid to get in the band and tour. We weren't a, We were an L.A. band, but we weren't an L.A. prima donna. You know, we, were, uh, we weren't We were just going to sit there and wait for MTV to play our video. We were like, just give us money. We want to go on the tour. We'll earn our fans, you know, and uh, and we kind of, did in a very small scale. And even till today, you know, there's those couple hardcore Plexi people that just love Cheer Up and it meant so much to them. And even at those uh, Smash Mouth shows, there'd be five kids dressed in black that would walk up to us and go, what the fuck are you guys doing playing with these guys? And we're like, we don't know, Atlantic, put us out, whatever, you know, Boot and and Rider and they're good clubs. You know, so there was always a couple people that would, you know, kind of like wingle out um, to come to come see us. When we, I remember when we released our pictures for Sub Pop for our record, there was a meeting, and they were in shock. They were like, "What the hell happened to you guys? What's with all the clown makeup?" You know. <laughs> and, uh, it just, it just sort of spiraled. I don't even really know how it happened. We were taking pictures, and one guy put on eyeliner, the other guy fucking did the thing, and then it was just. it we, I mean, we liked, I guess, fashion, you know? Um, we liked fashion, we like pop, we like rock and roll, we liked. Uh, you know. You we, guys were having we fun, were, too. <laughs> yeah, we loved everything that, that went into it, you know? It's just. Yeah. Uh, we were like, kind of, oddly, we were living the dream. I mean, we were stoked. We were young kids. We were, uh, you know, I mean, we were, you know, young kids in the 20s, but we were, uh, we were touring. I was getting like guitars, amplifiers, you know, Joyce fixed my leg when I broke it, you know, the, the, the rent at the $1,500 a month house was paid. We'd play in the backyard with the freaking door open. We'd play in a bedroom, you know. We well, had girlfriends. We'd go on tour. We had more girlfriends, and uh, we were we were
2: having fun. Track 12, you uh you take the lead vocal on that song, right? What, uh, is that a song you wrote uh, by yourself, or did uh, Michael Aid just decide to to hand it over to you to sing it, or how did that all work out?
0: Rehearsal, you know, would sometimes Michael would look at me and just be like, "We need a riff. Give me one of those heavy ones." And I just kind of shot out 56, and uh, so we wrote it together. It was, a, it was a band thing. It was something we've done. It was the second time on the on the, on the boys' IPP, I I sang a song called Ganesh. Um, I sang it through my guitar because I was shyer at the time. This mm. time, I actually, sang it into a microphone. Just became a thing, and then Michael, you know. He was, he was, it was cool. He just, I sang it. He let me sing it. He didn't think too much of it. And he got in there and sang some backups and threw some tongue in cheek stuff in there with the way he, uh, sang along with me. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that was my track.
2: <laughs> it Speaking definitely shows of, uh, off the, uh, the punks out of the band too.
0: Yeah. You know, what's, you know, what's funny is that, uh, uh, I said, Norm is skippity hoppity. And, uh, you know, he had given me a hard time one time about the way that I play guitar, you know, always like this. And I go, well, you're always skippity hopping. And I mean, look at fucking 56. is Total Punk. It's my Zeke song. And you're like skippity hopping through it. And it doesn't sound like it, you know? <laughs> skippity
2: hoppity What does that mean?
0: It just, you know, he's not like four on the floor kind of guy. Oh, okay. He's just like this, yeah. just this crazy, like, drad, like, just weird type of feel, you know? Mm. he just always has this like kind of bizarre take on a tempo i mean it's, sometimes i had to just look at him I'm like fuck when is he gonna actually go to the snare again you know
1: is i guess <laughs> you're talking about magnet track 11 because that definitely has the most like off-kilter drum beat of the entire album
0: yeah that was a good one um that was you know his popular drum beat uh the i think what was the drummer's name from Archers of love i want to say it was mark um but yeah, we go to there. Yeah, Mark their, Price. Uh, yeah, we get Mark. See, he would he would became like our closest. I loved all the guys in the band, all of them. I mean, the bass player, both guitar players, they were great. But Mark would actually on the tours he would get in our van. He would hang with us. We would, you know, we would just <laughs> we'd party together. And like I said, by the end of it, he was wearing eyeliner, and his band's like, what the hell? And, um, <laughs> he'd go to he'd go to Soundcheck, and he'd be playing that song, and he'd be in our van. Uh, with us listening to the music we listen to, like turning each other on to music, whether it's, uh, you know, because we were, we were into some pop, man. We were into Whiskey and the Holy Ghost, Lanigan, and, you know, earth and all those things, you know, it was, it, was, it was a huge, like Michael said, it felt like we won something, like we were part of this. Mm-hmm. And um, even though we kind of weren't, we didn't fit, you know, we didn't, we kind of like threw them away. But uh, yeah, that uh, magnet definitely sums up, uh, Style in a sense, and you know, it was it's something we wrote all together, and uh, definitely driven by Michael's uh, real good pop sense ability, almost like the Ramones in there, just for getting right to the, the pop. I mean, the pop of it, you know, just mm-hmm. get to the chorus.
1: Track 13, you mentioned about acoustic guitar on track six. This really features the acoustic guitar, and I noticed that it, it, as it being one of the quieter songs. It's also full of a ton of F-bombs, and I was wondering if that was sort of a, almost like a slap at, hey, we're writing an acoustic song, but we're not soft, so here's a bunch of F-bombs, sort of like an ironic way of writing an acoustic song.
0: Michael would probably have to answer that. Star Star was, I mean, obviously, uh, I think that, you know, there was a you know the, the 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 song title had been used before. Um,
1: yeah, the stones, right.
0: Yeah, and uh, and which was a big influence of our. I mean, we, you know, we were listening to our parents' record collection. You know, I mean, from the Doors to the Stones to, you know, finding the Floyd on our own, and uh, that was a Michael-driven song again. We came in with layers afterwards, from what I remember. And, you know, since Michael's not here, Michael uh, he did pretty okay with the ladies. You know, he uh, he dated a few, what I would consider at the time kind of uh, heavy hitters and, and he got broken in half a couple times and i think that star star wasn't any joke i think he was telling her to fuck off unfortunately i thought that that could have made a difference for us on the radio because uh, who wouldn't have loved that but he started right off by saying fuck you forgetting to. Yeah. And, you know, and at that moment, it's like, well, this isn't going on the radio. Um, well, you know, they could have always, you know, bleeped that, I guess. So maybe that wasn't the reason, but uh, I think that it was very honest for Michael. He was, uh, he wrote about what was happening. I mean, that's why I related to him so much. I mean, I felt at that time when we were in this band, the reason I stopped is I felt that most great artists that inspired me were either dead or dying. And that's what you had to do to make great art. You have to destroy yourself or be destructive. Bunny, Bunny happened in a destructive moment. You know, it was she walked out, and the first thing I did was grab the guitar, and I created the sound that could let people know what that, what that, what that scene in that movie looked like. And Michael and Star Star was was talking about Amanda the Cadet. You know, he liked her a lot, and. Uh, I, I truly believe I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. I truly believe that that uh, that song was about her, and, and that he was telling her "fuck you" for getting to me, you know. Mm. And then, but he also said you made a you made a kick a bit easier because he was kicking drugs when she was around. But, uh, we got sober. We both got sober around that time, and uh, Amanda was sober, and Michael and I really. We were, we were kind of like we really hung together a lot. So he uh, introduced me to her girlfriend, which you know, she was beautiful. And uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if you guys know about AA or whatever, but you know, they say however you get in the rooms is however you get in the rooms. And uh, well, I wandered into the room following a girl, and uh, mm. you know, and uh, so he introduced me to her, and you know, in, in, inevitably we both went obviously back out, but. Um, yeah, I believe that uh, that wasn't a joke. That was that was him uh, being being very vulnerable, which is you know when I I love him the most because and he did it a lot through the record. He's that's you're seeing lyrically, you're seeing the inside of him, and a lot of people never really got to know it or saw it. And, and then, um, you know I saw it on every level. Some people got turned off by just the. The smart-ass remarks that he would say, or whatever, but I knew him on a much knew him and know him on a much different
2: level. And uh, that song definitely shows a different side of the band, it's it's interesting to hear that you guys were um, was this was this the last song written for the album? I and mean, were you guys sort of in a different, a slightly different chapter of your uh, your life or the the existence of the think,
0: band? I think, or I think Star Star happened in the studio. You know, I don't I don't know that we were in a different chapter. In our lives as, as much as that's just who we were i think that we as a band we wanted to be able to just play anything we didn't want to be i love zeke but you know we didn't want to only have to play fast songs you know mm-hmm. that with you know shredding solos and talking about race cars we wanted to be able to do that and then also do just to cover the whole thing whether it was from my buddy valentine to loop to um, the Who, to like a Zeppelin-ish type song or, you know, the Nirvana influence or just just kind of anything,
2: you know? What would you, thinking back now, I mean, so what, almost 15 years now since this album came out? I guess the, the version we're reviewing. Are there any things that you would change about what you guys did or about the record itself or after the record?
0: Well, the only thing I would change is not breaking up. I mean, I, like I said, I'm... I'm happy with it. Yeah, I can nitpick, nitpick every song. I mean, we can spend a lifetime in the studio trying to perfect it, like, mm-hmm. Rose did with his new Guns N' Roses and whatever. You know, I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. you just gotta let out what what you're doing at that moment and let it be what it is. And I think mm-hmm. that we let we let this record out and and it it was what it was. I mean, we you know we remixed it, remastered it, did things when we moved to Atlantic. We um, you know, mastered it differently when they didn't even do that shit anymore. But you know, we uh, you know, we did those kind of things. An old producer friend of ours, Jimmy Boyle, got his hand in a couple of mixes. We talked to Dave Sardi about recording the record. We ended up using Jeff Powell. We passed on six other guys that you know became famous. Um, yeah, maybe we could have used one of them. Maybe we should have used Sardi. Look at Sardi now. I mean, yeah. you no, know, um, but you know what. I, we used Jeff Bow, and uh, it was good how did you make that an art?
2: How did you make that decision to do, uh, do it with Jeff Ball?
0: Well, I can only speak for me. I was really, really, really in the gentleman uh, uh-huh. the record. I think that I <clears throat> remember one of your other interviews bringing that record up um, mm-hmm. just as an inspiration. Uh, uh, the Afghan wigs. I personally was gentleman, was just constantly on my turntable. I think I brought it to their attention. I was like, this record's fucking insane. It has elements of what we do. This guy understands mm-hmm. it. Um, let's go here. I didn't realize at the time that it was more than just, just Jeff Powell, that the singer was very, very involved and prolific in that the sound that they captured mm-hmm. um, on their record. Um, I thought it was a little bit more just solely Jeff Powell. But, I mean, if I had it to do again, I, you know...
2: I would just be happy that I had it to do again you, know? <laughs> you <know? laughs> absolutely yeah excellent well you want wanna All right wrap well, up, Tim
1: yeah we have gone we have broken the record for uh, <laughs> for podcast length once again we keep breaking the record we're eventually we're going to do like a six hour you know five part mini series with um, i don't know a silver chair or something like that, but thank you for being so generous with your time. Michael, and make sure to please thank the other Michael A um, next time you talk to him for coming on and sharing his stories with us. You guys are, you guys were, like I said, so generous. We really appreciate it.
0: No problem. man. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, I'm sure he did too for a moment there to relive those moments.
1: Cool. And I want to mention that uh, you can pick up the album that we reviewed tonight. <laughs> Uh, plexi's cheer up it's on amazon but you can also go to subpop.com where you can purchase it uh, directly from the label that released it and then you can also check out michael's website evilspiritengineering.com and see what he is working on There's pit lots of pictures on there you can check out so lots uh, of ladies on bikes yes and please, uh, if you're listening to this episode, stop by our website, digmeoutpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and you can also pick up a t shirt or make a donation. Keep the podcast rolling along. And uh, that's it. I am closing shop. Time to uh, put this one to bed. Thanks to Michael. Thanks to Michael. Thanks to Jason. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
0: want to leave feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages. And thanks for listening.